Welcome to the Curiosity Club podcast, here to reschool us all in the things that really matter. I'm your host, founder of the Curiosity Club and certified life coach, Katri Barrett. Each episode, I speak to special guests asking the awkward and important questions so you don't have to. Each season, we focus on diving into a topic from our curious curriculum, self, mental health, sex, relationships, work, money, and a whole lot more. This is the podcast where we have the conversations needed to remove the shame, stigma, and feel less alone in the experiences that we all have in common. Are you curious? Pull up a chair and join us. Hello, hello. Welcome back to episode four of season three. As always, time is flying by. And today I'm sharing with you such an insightful conversation that I had the pleasure of having with one of the UK's leading consultant dermatologists and author of the best-selling book, The Skincare Bible, and that is Dr. Anjali Marto. As far back as the Egyptians, humans have been pretty obsessed with their skin. It is the first thing that we see, and because of this, so many of us form our sense of identity from the way that we look. The skincare industry is booming, and I don't know about you, but I have definitely felt overwhelmed and confused by all the conflicting info that seems to be out there, and also just the sheer volume of choice when it comes to all the products nowadays. I definitely didn't feel like I had any sort of clue what I was doing until I read Angelie's brilliant book, The Skincare Bible. It's a guide which aims to help you navigate the often very overwhelming skincare industry so that you can find the best and most effective products and routines that suit your individual skin. I learned so much in this conversation with Anjali and we touch upon some really important points that as a society and individuals, we really need to be talking about more when it comes to self-esteem and beauty. We talked about the link between skin, mental well-being and confidence and how and why we form a sense of self and identity through our skin. Anjali also shares her experience with acne and scarring in the past and the effect that this had on her mental health and what she learned when she went to therapy in her 30s. We have a really open and honest conversation around injectables like fillers and Botox, the pros and the cons, when they're appropriate, when they're not, and how to find the best person for the procedure if you're thinking about it. We also touch upon the issue with using Instagram filters. And what I love about Anjali is how open she is with the fact of what treatments she's had, why, um, in particular because the filler and Botox industry now in the UK is worth three billion pounds and with more young women than ever opting for these treatments it really is important that we have these nuanced expert conversations about it. Anjali also explains how exactly a dermatologist might be able to help you, ways that you can support yourself or a loved one who is struggling with a skin condition like acne, eczema or rosacea, along with what you can do to start disentangling your self-esteem from aesthetics and your skin. I also ask Anjali to debunk some of the biggest myths when it comes to what products are worth the money and the three necessities that you must have in your skincare routine. Make sure that you're following or subscribe to the Curiosity Club podcast and come and join in on the conversation with us over on Instagram. You can follow us at the Curiosity Club underscore. Do let us know what you've learned about your skin from this episode and your views on the topics that we touch upon. Please do leave a rating and review as it really helps us grow our wonderful club of curious people. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, Dr. Anjali Marto. How are you doing today? I'm very well, and I'm really excited about our chat today. 
Thanks for joining us. I've been wanting to have you on as a guest for quite some time. I think it, since I saw you speak at Sweaty Betty Live, which I think we were just talking about was was last year, 2019, we think. That's right. Not just about. And as as I hold my hands up to say, only a relatively new um sort of skincare convert I very much even up until just a two years ago and I'm cringing as I'm telling telling you this was a face wipe and moisturizer that was as far as my skincare routine went and definitely getting your book the skincare bible and hearing you speak has been so insightful anyone who hasn't got the book yet I'm going to recommend all the way through this that you go and <laughs> go and grab it so yeah I am I am learning and I'm very excited to speak to you today so I've given a little bit of an introduction as to sort of who you are and, and what you do. But before we dive into the various topics I'd love to chat to you about today, could you start by just telling us a little bit about what exactly a consultant dermatologist does? Who it is that you help and how you help people? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of confusion really about what the background of a dermatologist is. So a dermatologist is a practicing medical doctor that specializes in all issues related to the skin, the hair and the nails across every age group. So one day old babies to people in their 90s and older still. In the UK, to become a dermatologist, you have to get a medical degree first. And then following that, you have to rotate through a number of medical specialties, pass a set of exams. Once you do those exams, you are then allowed to specialize in dermatology. And when you finish that specialist training, you are then awarded the title of a consultant. So it's quite a long process to get there, but it's essentially a doctor of the skin. Wow, I didn't even realize that it was included the hair in that as well. So already, I've already learned something something new, but thank, thank you so much. I think that's so important to realize that this is something that it spans the whole lifetime I think they love that you said from babies to to elderly I think there's yeah. do you find that there's people sort of misconceive that it's only a certain sort of age group that that skincare applies to or skin skin sort of conditions or that they could go to a dermatologist for yeah that's absolutely right because I think that you know people that are blessed with good skin what I would say is you know when they think of skin they think of beauty and skin and how to improve sort of skin and health but dermatology covers skin and health but also skin conditions or skin in disease. And to be totally honest, nearly everybody will at some point have some kind of issues with their skin that could be related to hormonal changes, that could be due to changing seasons, getting older, or we will directly know somebody that has been impacted because of their skin. It would be very unusual not to have that. So it affects and it touches all of us. Mm, absolutely and I think and something I'm really keen to sort of talk to you about this season of the podcast is all around the self and exploring what it means like what make, makes up a part of our identity things like mental well-being and something I'm really um, sort of keen to chat to you about and I've heard you talk about before is how skin conditions might impact sort of mental health and mental well-being and in particular confidence yeah. and this is this is something that um you say I, I, I've seen directly affect so many people really close to me is this something that you you see a lot a lot of and and what do you think um yeah what are your thoughts on this yeah absolutely I mean I think one of the things is the skin is such a visual organ you know it is the first thing that we see and sadly I think it is the first thing that does become something we we judge others by and it affects our perception 
of ourselves and of others. And it is absolutely linked to confidence and self-esteem issues. And I think the distress and the trauma that skin problems can cause has been massively overlooked over the years. And I think it's only in, I would say probably the past decade or so that we're getting slightly better as even part of the medical community to recognize, you know what? Having acne, having rosacea, having eczema, having psoriasis, all of those things will massively impact how you feel on a day-to-day -day basis. The second thing is a lot of these skin conditions are chronic conditions. So what that means is there's no magic cure for them. You know, these are things that will come and go. There'll be good periods and there'll be bad periods. So even when your skin is good, you still live with the anxiety or the fear of when might it flare up again? So there's that additional component. And then I think on top of that, there is that whole idea of with this kind of day and age, social media, filtering, you know, this idea of perfection that people have, that if anything kind of fits off that grid of not being perfectly airbrushed, we become so critical of ourselves. And, you know, COVID and Zoom conferences has been a real driver for that, where people are looking at their own skin and going, oh my God, I'm really unhappy with it. Mm, oh, there's so many things to what you just said that, I, that I'm keen to sort of dive in a little bit more to. And mm -hmm. in particular, I think what, what you were saying around so much of uh, uh, the skin being that first sort of point of call that we 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 have when we sort of visually see someone and I think something as it within the curiosity club we're we're so our strap line is sort of the life lessons that we didn't get taught in school and it's about the learning those but also unlearning a lot of the various types of trauma from bullying or from little comments or things that yeah. were, we all we all picked up along the way and I think skin, particularly things going on with different with skin around teenagers and, and at school is certainly I saw it having a huge impact on people around me. Mental, I say around me because I was one of those people that didn't. I, I was, you know, you said referred to it as blessed. But I, I was very lucky in that I didn't yeah. have. Um, problems with acne however and I actually asked their permission if I could uh, name name them my two sisters so I'm one of three yeah. two sisters had really severe acne and have had lots of treatment and even to this day as, as adults in their 30s really impact has still impacted them and, and I that's something I think is really important to acknowledge and, I, and I, what do you think what are your thoughts around how we could remove some of that stigma even further? What do you think we all need to be doing? And was there something that we, we could have done at, at school or what needs to be different, do you think? I think there's, there's a lot there that we can do. I mean, I think one of the big things, for example, is the images that we are exposed to. And, you know, you watch teenage dramas, teenage soaps, how many people have actually got spots in them? You know, like you, watch, you know, Gossip Girl, The OC, all of those types of shows, everyone looks perfect. So I think the first thing is, you know, we're not even exposed to people that have skin conditions that are really common. 80% of the population will suffer with acne at some point in time, yet how often do we see it on the TV? Not just that, you know, adverts for acne, I remember this growing up, you know, adverts for like Clean and Clear and Clearasil, even the model in the adverts for acne didn't have acne, you know? So it was almost like, we, we never see these images. So I think that that's part of it. I think the whole kind of skin positivity movement, acne positivity movement that exists on social media has been fantastic because it allows people to see those real life images of what real skin looks like, you know? So I think there's that. I think the second thing that we could 
all do is slightly take responsibility for our own feeds and what we're doing with social media. You know, if you are in a position where you have influence, actually, how about you don't always filter all your photos? How about you show us what you really look like? Because I think that's massively empowering. You know, we don't have to look perfect in all of our photographs. It sets up this expectation that that's how we're all supposed to look and do look. And it's so not. And I'm going to say that from the point of view of a dermatologist who not only do I see people with sort of facial skin conditions, if people come in for mole checks, they strip down, they get naked in front of me. I see a lot of naked people every day because of my job. And everyone's got cellulite, everyone's got stretch marks, all of those things that we kind of think, oh my God, it's so terrible and ashamed of, we've all got them. It's just, we don't see them because they aren't the things that we tend to share about ourselves. So I think there's that. And then I think also, it's about how we talk to the younger females in our networks or our families. You know, I think so much worth has been placed on our aesthetics and what we look like and that being a predominant kind of, you know, the, the center stage. And actually, we should be teaching young girls that they don't need to be pretty as a princess. We should be teaching them that their, their brains and their minds are smart and we should be congratulating them for something they've built or how strong they are or all those other things that we would give to little boys so they can learn to disentangle their self-esteem from what they look like. Mm, absolutely I, I can completely agree and I think and it's definitely there's a lot of unlearning in terms of, of do, doing that and it's it's yeah. something it's not a new thing I know I, I love in in the introduction to to your book um you talk about the fact that the that this obsession with the skin came back from the Egyptians I think you talked yeah. about and I think so it's not this isn't like a new thing it's just it's evolving and with social media as, as you said we've seen that that pressure for that filtered, flawless life in all senses of, of the word. And, and as you were saying, it's having having that awareness and, and almost um, um, kind of making the promise to yourself for the for, the, for all women to show up more, more with, um, you know, unfiltered, just yeah. not necessarily bearing all, but just being like, as you would, no, no makeup or not putting a filter on, on your on your photos or your stories. I think that could be so, so powerful for everyone to sort of see that, wouldn't it? It would. And sort of moving on, moving a little bit further on that with, with a, um, with the, the time and time that we're in. And I know I heard you talk about this recently. I think at the um, with with the food medic um, about how you're how you're seeing people come to clinic and you're seeing people in the last six five six years how much it's changing and and obviously with aesthetics and all the treatments and things like that that are now widely available. I think I heard recently in Superdrug are now going to be doing injectables I think and things like yep. that what what are your thoughts on that how how do you think that's yeah what are your thoughts oh it's, it's it's a really tricky one and I find this a really tricky one because on one hand I do perform these treatments but on the other hand I'm the first person to say no if somebody doesn't need them and send them on their way so I think one of the things that possibly I've talked about in a previous conversation is if I looked at the kind of people that were coming for injectable treatments like Botox and filler maybe say five years ago those people would generally probably be in their 40s to 50s. And, you know, they are older and estrogen levels start to fall from your mid 40s onwards. So that does impact the skin. But over the past few years, it's become so normalized that I see people that are very, very young coming in for treatments that I would consider anti-aging. And their skin hasn't really aged. You know, so it's not unusual to see like now a, a 21 year old coming in and saying, I want lip filler, I want preventative Botox. Now, I definitely have mixed feelings about that because 
The first thing is you've got to have something to treat. I don't buy this idea that like if you keep starting really early, you're not going to age. There is this like group of people that start treatments too early. And honestly, they could be 55 or they could be 25. But you cannot tell because so much has been put into their faces that it, it no longer becomes an enhancing, subtle thing. It becomes like everyone's faces look the same because everyone's having the same thing done in the same places. So there is that concern. I think social media has allowed things to become so accessible. So five years ago, you know, people weren't talking about their treatments. They weren't talking about what was involved. There was kind of like a a mystery around how on earth Botox or fillers work. But, you know, the minute you've got like Kim Kardashian posting her, her vampire facial or posting a treatment that or the other, there's no mystery around it anymore. People know exactly what it involves. It kind of removes the fear factor and normalizes it. And my worry is that we have over normalized getting these treatments from a really young age that all we're doing is fueling further self-esteem issues. And that's a problem. You can have a treatment to enhance what you've got because you know, you'd know you feel that you look a little bit tired or you look a little bit sad. But if you're doing these treatments because you think that that's somehow going to give you, I don't know, it's gonna give you better job prospects or it's going to give you like a better date or whatever that might be. I think we've gotta be really careful with that. Our self-esteem has got to come from within, not from what we look like. Mm, absolutely and it's not it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with getting the treatments and absolutely everyone is uh, uh, um, should should do what's right for them but I think it is as you said it's if you're not doing it for the right reasons and it's and you can get caught in that uh, that that cycle of always seeking more and more and where then is the point where you do feel enough and whether that's confident enough good enough and I think when it comes in that place of, of self-esteem that that then is 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 problematic what do you think then what do you think is a solution what do you think could help with people and for people and how can they how can someone know whether they they they, they want to get a certain type of, of treatment say for example in the fillers and, and it's coming if it's the best choice for them how, how can someone know that do you think yeah so I think this is a really good question actually because you know I'm going to say this as I'm, I'm going to be 41 in, in a month and I have had a little bit of Botox and a little bit of filler over the years. So, you know, there's seriously no judgment. I have these treatments done. I do these treatments. But what I do think is when you are choosing somebody to do those treatments for you, one of the problems with the way and the methods that people will go through choosing a doctor is often what they'll do is they will go to Instagram and they will look at a ton of before and afters. There is a problem with that. The problem with that is if you, for example, look at a picture of a before and after of a set of lips, the lips individually, they may look better afterwards, but you have no idea what those lips look like on that face because you don't see the rest of the face. And the one thing about doing these types of treatments is there has to be balance and harmony and symmetry in the face. There could be a great set of lips on one person, but they would look entirely inappropriate on somebody else. So I think you need caution around those before and afters and realize that you're not seeing a full face view there. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is when you go to somebody or you choose a practitioner that's going to do it, make sure that they are medically qualified. You know, um, in the UK, fillers are unregulated. You do not have to be medically qualified to, to inject filler. And I have seen some awful cases of people that have bought filler online, which is not great filler. They've watched a YouTube video and they've self-injected and they've run into problems with self-injecting like infection, like sinuses. It's, 
it, and it happens. This is the thing. It happens. So make sure the person is medically qualified. They're on the GMC, the General Medical Council Register, the GDC, the dental equivalent, or, you know, if they're a nurse prescriber, an aesthetics nurse, so it doesn't have to be a doctor. There are certain nurses that are trained to do it. The third thing is also be aware that what you think you need might not actually be what you need. Because I think sometimes people come in with this idea of like, oh, you know, my nose to mouth lines are really prominent. I feel like they're sagging there. The answer isn't to inject filler into the nose to mouth lines, even though that's what might be the issue. The way to treat that is actually to inject higher up the face to, to pull things up, so to speak. So you do need to have a proper face-to-face -face assessment so somebody can actually look at, at all of your face to tell you what it is you need. Wow, that's, that's so interesting. I can't believe, it's shocking that, that people are getting to the point where they're ordering it and ordering filler and injecting it themselves. Yeah. That really, really is 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 shocking, and I think more it needs to be talked about more. Whilst it's it certainly is growing, it's an industry that's growing hugely, yeah. and and I can you can see when you when you're you know on the tube, you can see young people around, and you can see that these treatments, lots of people are having this. So it just needs yeah. to normalise talking about it. Yeah, I agree. I think as as you said, just being open. If you've had whatever you're having done, whether it's a type of facial, just saying if you've had certain treatments, just almost owning that, so that then people aren't aiming for something um, that is is unrealistic by just you know buying a certain type of moisturizer if someone's had years of, of injectables for example I'm so glad you said that actually because I think this is a genuine issue where you know often particularly in beauty you will see oh I use x product and my skin looks like this and it's like yep yeah, but what about all the other stuff you had done you know that's definitely not the skincare that's doing that Oh, yes, it is. That is so important. So, so important. And as, as you said before, I think especially if you have a, a platform or some level of influence in it, in whatever capacity that is, whether it is just a younger um, woman in your family or a younger person in your family, it's not only women that get the get um, that, that this this um, applies to. Um, I think just having those conversations and I think it, it's yeah, it's so important. And, and, and then it will enable people to know what is best for them. And if and if it is that it, you're someone realizes it's from a place of um, hoping it will make them feel hmm. more whole or more confident. Then they think it's realizing, okay, well, there's some work I need to do to do there. And there's of course, so many different, so many different things that, that, that um, everyone could do that as a life, as a certified life coach right, and works a lot with, with women in confidence. Then, you know, it's, 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 there's so much you can do and it's not getting caught in that trap of making changes that are permanent changes. And uh, do you, how much do you see, do you ever see people who get work some work like that done and and, and are kind of reg regretful of it or is it yeah what would what would you say about yeah no you, you absolutely do I mean one of the reasons why I kind of feel so cautious about the kind of the, the mental health aspect of this is one of the things that we know about people that present themselves to dermatology and plastic surgery clinics is that there is a high rate of body dysmorphic disorder BDD and one of the things that we know is if you treat somebody that has got a tendency towards BDD, first of all, it is a slippery slope. You know, you start with one treatment, you end up doing all sorts of things that actually you may regret further down the line. Uh, and the second thing is often you don't get a good outcome because the thing is the, the issue isn't whatever the person is telling you the issue, it's much, much deeper than that. So you could do these treatments in the hope that it, there's a confidence boost and it might be for a day or two and then something else becomes the issue. And then, you know, you look in the mirror and then there's something else that you don't like and you fixate on. And 
we want to make sure that if that's how you feel about yourself, you get the right help that you need. And I think the problem is when people will go to practitioners, there might be an element of that, but people will be like, it's okay, I can inject all of this for you. Thank you very much. That's X thousand pounds. Send people on their way, but you've not actually done them any favors because the issue is, is deep inside. And that is the thing that needs to be addressed and talked about. And I agree with you. I think we can all do with a bit of extra help, you know? So I think it is about recognizing and spotting that because if you don't, there's going to be a bad outcome, I think, for the person having those treatments and they will regret it. And I've certainly seen that. I've also seen people, as I said, that have self-injected and they've regretted that as well. So there are so many issues that need unpicking. Mm, and, and I think, as you said, this isn't going to be something that can change overnight. But I think if we can all work work together, it, well, as in work with ourselves and being more open and supportive. And also what I wanted to, to talk about um, with you is how, how can we support... Um, a loved one and I think particularly a loved one with a skin condition maybe like acne or, or eczema or something like that that's a skin condition but I suppose it's also relevant I don't know whether you, you would agree to to supporting someone's decision maybe to get some some work like this this done what what are your sort of thoughts around that of what we should say not say do and not do yeah, I'm going to say this from the point of view of somebody that's had troublesome skin their entire life. Um, so this is coming from my patient hat, I guess, as well as my doctor hat. And I think the first thing is with, with a lot of visible skin conditions, don't give unsolicited advice. I know that people think that they're trying to help and they're trying to help their friend. We're going, oh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Chances are, if you've got a skin condition, I mean, first of all, you know about it. You've probably spent a long time trying to conceal it, cover it up, whatever else it might be. The second thing is, chances are you have already also thought of like maybe cutting this out, trying that product, which is all the standard stuff that people get advised. Have you thought about cutting out dairy? Oh, it's your diet that's causing that. Oh, you haven't washed your face properly. All of those types of things. And for the vast majority of people that have issues like acne, it's down to your hormones and your genetics. It's nothing to do with what you washed your face with. So I think be very, very cautious of unsolicited advice. If you've got a friend or a loved one that is happy to be talking about their skin and they open that conversation up with you saying, oh, my skin's, you know, my skin's really bad today or I'm feeling really down about my skin. I think that's the point where you can kind of very tentatively skirt around. Well, you know, how does it make you feel? You know, what things have you tried? And that's the point where you can then judge, do they want to talk about it further? In which case you may want to kind of make your suggestions. But if they make it very, very clear that, you know, they don't want to pursue that line of conversation, you don't push it. So the unsolicited advice is a big thing. The second thing I would say is if you have got somebody that's suffering with their skin and you can see that it's impacting their, their confidence, their self-esteem, their body image, all of the above, I would actually very much encourage them to see a health professional because chances are there is probably a prescription treatment their GP could offer them. And failing that, if you know we get to the point where the GPs are unable to control it, they will refer on to a dermatologist. I just feel like we... We shouldn't have to suffer in silence with our skin. And, you know, there are things that we can do and people should be encouraged to seek help early rather than spank a fortune on skincare, find their skin hasn't gotten better. They're still feeling terrible about it, but they're also like, you know, hundreds of pounds, like more in the debt as a result of it as well. And I see that. Mm, no, I think that's really important that that not just, the unsolicited look can't say that the unsolicited advice as you said not just to someone as you said you don't need to tell someone they've they've got a spot I think or some spots they know as you said yeah. that's something I've definitely snapped at people yes. 
partners before and things like that. Yeah. And I, know that I, and I think it's so, so important in looking at in terms of making positive changes to um to the world of um what's the word i'm looking for not not to say to the world of skin but in terms of being that removing the unfiltered the filtered uh, preconceptions and the flawless you know misconceptions of the flawless life and flawless skin i think there's so much we can do as individuals but also just making sure we're supporting people around us yep. um, in that way is so important and that brings us nicely on to the kind of more of the practical sort of lessons here which I'm very keen to dive into what about sort of skincare myths what would you say are the biggest myths you see in terms of products what doesn't work who we shouldn't be taking advice on what we shouldn't be doing Sure. I mean, gosh, you know, there is an absolute wealth of misinformation on skin and it's impossible to, to call it all out. So, you know, I tend not to do that. But I think the, the big and the really pervasive ones have particularly over the last 12 months or so been things like natural skincare being safer for you than synthetic or chemical skincare. So this idea of, you know, clean skincare or clean beauty that's free from a whole load of ingredients. What I would say there is when we think about natural skincare, we think about, you know, plant-based products generally, or, you know, something that's come from, from Mother Earth, I guess, for lack of a better descriptive term. Now, there's nothing wrong with plant-based or botanical agents, but what you need to bear in mind with generally natural skincare is it's much more prone to quality variation than something that's been made in a factory or a lab. It makes a big difference if that plant in your skincare grew on the sunny side of the mountain versus the shady side of the mountain, what their climate was like that year it was harvested, whether it was the right bit of the plant, was it the stem, the fruit, the flower, the leaf that's been gotten hold of to get the active ingredient that you need? How was that plant sort of harvested? How was it transported? Then how long did it sit around before you then kind of extracted the bits that you need to put it together? There's a lot more kind of steps where the variation things can go wrong. So it's not that like, you know, natural skincare is bad, but you just need to be aware that it's not the kind of all, like all kind of singing, dancing, better for you than something that's got parabens in it, for example. So that's the first thing that I would say. Um, the second one that I've seen is a lot of people ask me recently about, should I be wearing sunscreen inside? Because I've heard that blue light from my computers and my laptops and my mobile phones can lead to skin aging. Blue light from our mobile phones and our tech devices is not going to age our skin. Blue light can cause pigmentation and premature skin aging when it comes from the sun, because there's a heck of a lot more blue light coming from the sun than there is what we're exposed to on a daily basis. So that's the second thing. We do not need to freak out about our sunscreens indoors and skin aging. So that's another big one that I, I tend to see. The third one that is quite a pervasive one is the, um, the diet and acne myth as well that diet is directly related to acne. Now, if you look at all of the clinical trial data that we've got, for a small group of people, absolutely, dairy can impact your skin and it can lead to breakouts. But for the vast majority of people, that is not the case. It is hormones, it is genetics, and I've got plenty of vegan patients that suffer with acne. If it was as simple as cutting out dairy, they wouldn't have it. So it's, it's also about making sure that you're not blanketly cutting out food groups out of your diet, because I think that can also lead to stress and anxiety and behaviors around food that can also then not serve us well long term oh those are those are so interesting thank you and, and I think I mean I think I've definitely fallen into sort of believing or definitely the cut out dairy before years ago now yeah 
because I, when I did in my early 20s have, have um, a few months where I did have quite a lot of spots, I definitely felt, find myself being like parabens bad, must go for organic yeah. skincare. That's so interesting to, to remind ourselves not to just be sort of pulled in by the marketing of products. That's right. That's right. Because a lot of that marketing, it, it's a fear-based marketing, basically. Mm, no, no, it's so such such important reminders. And then on the flip side, then of that, what are the skincare basics? Is it possible to even like almost? Is there even a skincare basics that that is suitable for every type of skin, or is it so nuanced that every type of skin is different? I think the generic steps are the same for everyone, but in terms of individual products, that's likely to vary. And that's likely to vary even in one person through the course of their lifetime. You know, even as women go through hormonal changes like pregnancy and the menopause, your skin will change. But also seasonally, you know, people find their skin is more dry in the winter than it is in the month in, in the summer. So there's there's lots of kind of nuances to the individual, but from a generic point of view, you know, cleansing your skin twice a day is super important particularly your nighttime cleanse, because that is when you are getting dirt, sweat, grime, pollution, makeup, all of those things that your skin has come into contact with during the day, they do need to be removed. If you wear makeup at night, it's probably a good idea to double cleanse. So your first step should be properly removing your makeup. And that can be done with something like a micellar water and a cotton pad. And then your second step is properly cleaning the skin to then allow the next parts of your skincare routine. So cleansing morning and evening, we should all be doing. In certainly the UK, in the months between March and October, our longer sort of spring and summer, we should be wearing sunscreen. Um, Ideally, it should be a broad spectrum sunscreen that offers protection against UVA and UVB, minimum factor 30, ideally a 50 actually. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that wearing sunscreen on your exposed areas will reduce your risk of skin cancer longer term. If you have five or more sunburns before the age of 18, that doubles your lifetime risk of getting melanoma, that skin cancer that we worry about. So number one, skin cancer rates are rising in the UK, have been doing so since the 1970s. So putting sunscreen on will reduce your risk of that. Secondly, we also know that the signs that we associate with skin aging, so fine lines, wrinkles, pigmentation, about 80% of that is also driven by sunlight. So if I can't convince you on a medical basis, maybe I can appeal to your aesthetic basis and go, if you don't want your skin to age or you don't want it to age quickly, you must, must wear that sunscreen as well. And then the third thing is if you are in your late 20s, early 30s onwards, and you do have concerns about skin aging, using a vitamin A product like a retinoid at nighttime is also beneficial after cleansing. So cleansing, sunscreen, moisturizer if you need it, and then good strong actives like your vitamin A. Wow, so, it does, so you can strip it down. So it doesn't necessarily need to be any more complicated than three to four steps. Absolutely. I think we are all going crazy buying far too many products at the moment. And there's two issues with that. The first issue is, I mean, it's not great on the wallet to be having so many products. The second thing is you do increase your risk of irritation and sensitivity by layering all of these like products onto your skin if you don't need them. The third thing is, you know, and I think we are thinking about this more and more, but from a sustainability environmental perspective, you know, every product that we buy does have, you know, implications on the environment and the climate with at every point of like the supply chain. So if we want to think about actually just generally, you know, wanting to do des- damage to the environment as well, we should just be buying less. And that includes skincare. 
Mm, absolutely. And I and something I've been really mindful of recently is how I don't think all the little funny pumpy bottles, I don't think those can be recycled. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's the glass bottles. Some of them can, but then often you find the products that come in the glass bottles are more expensive because actually glass is more expensive to store and, and ship and all of that. So it does have a knock on effect on prices. And is there a difference between the sort of, of, there's such a spectrum of off the shelf sort of stuff you could buy in boots or super drug, three to five pounds, say, or there's, you know, some things for hundreds of pounds. Yeah. What's the difference between those? Generally speaking, if you look at the actual active ingredients, there is no benefit in buying something that is hugely expensive. You know, a lot of the drugstore bands that are cheaper, they are equally as good. So for certain things like moisturizers, you know, an expensive moisturizer is probably going to be no better than a cheap moisturizer. If you look at your skincare products and you look at the ingredients list, um, the ingredients list is listed in descending order. So your product is probably primarily made up of the first three to five things on the list. Everything else is going to be in much, much smaller proportions or concentrations. So with things like moisturizers, for example, your top five ingredients for a really expensive moisturizer, I can guarantee will be exactly the same as a cheap one. So from a personal point of view, I don't really spend probably more than about 30 pounds on any individual product. I just think that when you're getting into the the luxury market, you are paying for the luxury branding and marketing and packaging. And that's okay. You just, you know, sometimes it's nice to have something that smells good or looks pretty on your shelf. You know, it's like, why do some people buy more like designer clothes or handbags and others don't? So it's also, you know, part of that, it's a luxury item and that's what you're spending it on. But if you're doing it for kind of results, you don't need to be spending hundreds on a single product. Mm, no, that's, I think that's so, so useful for people to know. I think if, if it makes you feel good, do what makes you feel yeah. good. But it, for results wise, it's not, yeah. doesn't necessarily make a difference. Yeah. Is there a difference? Should people, with, in terms of different skin, skin types, I know obviously you can, there's the skin types such as like oily or dry or sensitive, yeah. but do people need to be paying attention if they, in terms of are there better products suited or not so suited to say black skin or Asian skin or, or Caucasian skin? Generally, rather than doing it on kind of sort of ethnic skin types and skin of color versus not, I think it's much better to look at whether the skin is sensitive or it's dry or it's oily. So, for example, if you've got oily skin or blemish prone skin or acne prone skin, you're probably going to do better with a foaming cleanser rather than something that doesn't foam up. On the other hand, if your skin is quite dry or it's quite sensitive or it's mature skin, you've gone through the menopause, it's more fragile than it used to be, you may not want to use a foaming cleanser. It might dry you out too much. So you may want to go for a cream cleanser instead. So that's one clear example where I would choose the cleanser choice based on the type of skin. I can see in front of me. And I think there's benefit in doing that. And that applies for oily black skin as well as oily white skin. Um, there's, there's no issue there. So it, it's better more really to try and understand the underlying skin type itself. Same with moisturizers for that matter. So when you look at moisturizers, moisturizing ingredients come in three main categories. They come in occlusives, which are things that form a barrier on the skin to prevent water loss from the skin surface. So that's things like cocoa butter, shea butter, you know, um, your really occlusive Vaseline type, petrolatum type things. Then you've got your emollient moisturizers and they fill in the the gaps between your skin cells. And then you've got a third group called your humectants. And those are the ones that bind water from the deeper layers to hydrate the skin up. 
If you have got very oily skin, you probably don't want to use something that's very occlusive because it's going to block your pores and give you more spots. So you don't want to be sticking cocoa butter or shea butter on your face. You're better off going for something humectant based like a hyaluronic acid instead. On the other hand, if you've got eczema, dry skin, tendency towards psoriasis, or you find your skin, again, it's very dry in the winter, you want to go for something that's slightly more emollient occlusive than is humectant or hyaluronic acid containing. Most moisturizers will contain a combination of these types of ingredients, but again, it's assessing your skin type. And if you, you haven't got that much interest in the ingredients themselves, what I would say is feel the texture of the product. If the texture is light, it's gel, it's watery, great for oily skin. If it feels quite thick, quite heavy, quite rich, you probably want it for your dry skin. Oh, that's so useful, I think, to literally, you do, confusingly yeah. reading the labels, just what does it feel like and getting yeah. to know your, your unique sort of skin, skin type. Absolutely. Oh no, that's so, so, so useful. My last question on the, on, mm. in terms of like treatments and things, what about things like I'm seeing so, so many people getting, uh, and I am tempted to, because anyone who's had microneedling, that's what I'm talking about, done, they're just gl- glowing. What, what are your thoughts on microneedling and also collagen? Because that's something else I'm seeing people talk about a lot at the moment. Yes, so microneedling is an effective treatment for a number of reasons. Um, Microneedling can be used on skin that has no problems at all. And the idea is that every time you have a little injury made to the skin, your skin's response to that is to produce new collagen. And collagen is that protein that gives your skin its support, its structure. It's also that protein that we start to lose by about 1% per year in our skin from the age of 25 onwards. So having regular treatments with microneedling can help boost collagen production over time. Microneedling can also be helpful for very mild acne scarring as well. So that's a medical reason why it would be good. My only cautions with microneedling would be if you have a lot of active acne or any other active skin condition like eczema or psoriasis, you could trigger a flare up of those conditions. So it's very, very important that those conditions are under control before you would have microneedling. So that that would be my only caveat, but otherwise I think it's a good treatment. Um, And the second part of your question was collagen. I presume you mean collagen supplements. Or collagen creams. I'm. I. They're, they're different things. It's just something I've seen people t- talking about, and I've sort of not not looked into myself, but just I've made a note of it. Being like, what is this all about? Is it people? Is it worth people? Um, is, is it helpful for people? Is it? Is it not? Is it just another sort of faddy type thing for sale? So oral collagen and collagen supplementation is something that's become quite popular. Probably, I would say, in the past sort of three to five years. The idea and the theory behind it is if you have collagen and you ingest collagen, you will help boost collagen in your skin because uh, I say, you know, you start to lose collagen as you age. The clinical trial data, though, to be honest, I remain to be convinced. The reason being that collagen is a protein. When you eat or you drink your collagen, it travels down into your gut and your gut will break it down into its constituent amino acids that it's made from. The theory then is that these amino broken fragments of collagen float around in your bloodstream and somehow know to end up in your skin and produce new collagen there. There are about 30 different types of collagen in your body. And I've seen some collagen supplements selling the right wrong type of collagen. So type two and four is some that I've seen in supplements, but your skin contains type one and type three. So 
you know, two and four, like four isn't going to do much for your skin. So that's my first thing. The second thing that I would say is if you are the kind of person that is worried about skin aging and you've got extra money to spend on collagen, you're probably also the kind of person that is good with your diet. You're probably the kind of person that is wearing sunscreen, the kind of person that's using their retinol. So doing all these other things as well. It's then really difficult to know whether the skin looks great because of all of the other things that you do or whether it's because of the collagen itself. The third thing is a lot of the studies that exist on collagen are funded by the companies that make them. So there is clearly a conflict of interest. The sample sizes they use are very small. So I guess... I would say at this moment in time, there are other proven methods like your sunscreen and your retinoids, which I think are worthwhile spending money on. I personally don't take collagen supplements. I remain to be convinced. That's not to say data might not appear in the next four to five years, but current data, I think that there are better things to be doing and better ways to be spending your money. Mm, oh no, thank you for that. I think it's, it's there's so many interesting and useful kind of actionable points for people to sort of take away from from this conversation and for anyone if they if they haven't already to get your book the skincare um bible because it's yeah I still I find myself dipping back into that whenever if I'm, oh, if I'm looking, <laughs> looking for an answer for something yeah. um, to round things up though, the question that I like to ask all the guests that we have on here mm. Thinking back to your time at school, as now yeah. in hindsight, the wonderful thing, what is something, and this is goes across the board, anything, but what is something that you wish you'd learned in school? Honestly, this is probably going to tie back to skin because I had terrible acne as a teenager at school. And, um, you know, it's not nice being at the brunt of nasty comments and things like that. And, you know, I went to an all girls school and girls can be quite mean when they gang up together. And I do wish in retrospect, actually, that I had spoken up about how my skin made me feel and the impacts that it had. And I just got my skin treated sooner. Because I think one of the things that happens when you've had a long term skin condition is even when it gets better, if you've been so mentally traumatized by your experience, when you look in the mirror, you still see a spotty 12-year-old, even though you're not that person anymore. So I do think that I would encourage everyone, myself included looking back, that I think if your skin is bothering you and it's making you feel sad or it's making you miserable, you need to tell someone so they can help you. Mm, and I think so many people listening will, will resonate with that. And what would be your advice from, from your per, personal experience, so personal, but also professional for people who still look in the mirror and see, see that um, sporty teenager maybe for themselves? What can they do to, to help heal themselves now? I think it's a really good question, actually. And a lot of it does come down to sort of means as well. And I recognize the privilege when I say this, but, you know, I think seeing a therapist and being able to disentangle your skin, your self-esteem, because it feeds into everything, you know, how you behave with other people, how you behave with people at work, how you date, your other relationships, you know, the fact that you may not want to socialize and you go into social withdrawal if your skin is bad. I think being able to see a therapist or a clinical psychologist or somebody that can help you through that is vital. And I said earlier as well, I think we can all do with a bit of extra help. And I'm quite happy to say that I certainly saw a therapist in my 30s, a lot of it related to my skin. And I wish I'd done it sooner because it really helped get to a place where it's just like, yeah, skin's quite a secondary thing, really, isn't it? Mm, absolutely and thank you so much for sharing that because I think it is so so important and, and sometimes we need to hear what's helped other people and just remind ourselves it's okay to ask ask for help at any yeah. stage in our lives totally where can people find you uh okay so um Instagram uh at Anjali Marto I 
I'm on Twitter, but I don't use it that much. I think I'm at Dr. Anjali Marto on Twitter and then Workwise at 55 Harley Street. Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for all your incredible insights. It's been so lovely talking to you. Oh, thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure that you're subscribed and please do leave a rating and review because it really helps other people discover the podcast. Until next time, stay curious. Thank you.